The rest of the Mishnahs for this Perek discuss many different examples, which are not really related to the Masechta itself, of things which were instituted in Bonon because of Tikkun Oilam. There was a particular big issue and concern of something happening, and therefore they enacted certain decrees to avoid reaching these situations. So the Mishnah tells us that Evad Shanishbar, a non-Jewish slave who was captured and held for ransom, and his owner didn't, didn't want to ransom him. And he really gave up hope of getting back the slave. And by doing so, he lost ownership of the slave. An Andrewish slave is considered to be totally owned by his master. But when he gave up hope of getting him back, so he lost ownership of that slave. Ufta Uhu, and somebody else redeemed him. Imrushum Eved, if that other person redeemed him in order that he become his slave, then Yishtabed. He, he is obligated to be the slave of the person who redeemed him. The whole redemption was really in order to acquire that slave as a slave. Imrushum Ben Chayrin, if he redeemed him in order for him to be free, he wasn't doing it in order to gain himself and have a slave, then Lejtabed, he doesn't need to be a slave and he's a free man now. He doesn't go back to the original master because he gave up hope of getting him back and therefore he lost ownership of that slave. That is the opinion of the Tankamba. Mishim Ben Gamliel says, Whether this or whether that, in both cases, whether the man redeemed him to be a slave or not to be a slave, in both cases, Yishtabed, the slave is a slave and he needs to serve his original master. Even if his original master gave up hope of getting him back, this was instituted as Tikkun Oilam because there was a concern that a slave would purposely hand himself over to captives to capture him, and that way at least he would have a chance of becoming a free man. It would depend on the person redeeming him, would he redeem him to be a slave or to be a free man? But he knew that that way he would be able to get out of being the slave of the first man. And therefore, in order to stop the slave doing such a thing, the Rabbanon said that if he does it, he'll still go back to being a slave of the original master. The second half of the Mishnah discusses an apotiki. Apotiki is a shortened form of three words in Aramaic, poitehekoi, which literally means over here it will be standing. And an apotiki is where one borrows money from somebody else. Let's say Reuven borrowed money from Shimon. And although in general Reuven would be able to give him back money or whatever he ends up giving back, which is worth that amount, an apotiki is where one designates a specific thing and the agreement of the loan is that the loan has to be given back from this specific thing only. He can't give back the value of something else, can't be anything else. He has to give back and the entire repayment of the loan will come from this particular item. So what happens if a man had a non-Jewish slave and his master made the slave the apotiki for somebody else? Meaning his master borrowed money and he said that the apotiki would be his slave and the, the loan will be repaid by him giving his slave to the, other, to the other person, to the lender. But meanwhile, before the date came that he had to give over the slave, the shikharai, his master freed his slave. Says the Mishnah, Shuras Hadin, according to the strict letter of the law, Eino Ebed Chayv Klum, the slave is not obligated to anything. He's now a free man, isn't obligated to be a slave of anybody, and that is what the strict letter of the law says. However, Elohim they take an oilam because of Tikkun Oilam, which literally means fixing the world, there's a big issue and concern which had to be solved. And that is that there's a concern that the second master will come up to this person, the slave, who's now a free man, and he'll claim that you're my slave. 
The slave who's now a free man and Jewish, when a non-Jewish slave is freed, he converts to become Jewish. So he's now married and he's got children, and this lender might come up to him and say, you're still my slave, which means that all of your children are not allowed to marry Kernim, for example. They're children of a slave. So to avoid such a claim being made, his master, meaning the lender who was supposed to receive the slave, we force him to write a document in order to free the slave. So he goes free. The And the slave needs to write a document saying that he owes the lender his value or at least the value of the loan. If the value of the loan was smaller than his value, then he owes him that value, because he was really supposed to be his slave. And even though it's not his fault that he is now free, etc., at the end of the day, he is the one gaining from it. So the Rabbanon said that he needs to pay the lender so that the lender will be willing to write a document to free him, and he won't start making claims that he is still a slave. The only one who writes that he owes the lender money is the one who freed the slave. He's the one who caused the slave to be freed. He's the one who owed the money at the beginning and had to pay the lender the slave. So he's the one who now has to give the lender the value of his slave. Now, according to the strict letter of the law, he is exempt, because the damage which he caused the lender is totally indirect. But once the Rabbanon said that somebody is obligated to pay the value, says from Shimon Gamliel, that's certainly going to be the one who originally owned him and was supposed to give him over to the other person, to the lender. Mishnah here, another example of a Tikkun Oilam, also concerning a slave, and this time we're talking about somebody who is half a slave and half a free man. How does that work? So if, for example, there were two people who jointly owned a non-Jewish slave, and one of the partners freed the slave. They freed his share in the slave. And now that person is half a slave to the remaining partner and half a free man. Says Mishnah, He should serve his master one day and he's considered to be totally owned by his master. Totally. On the days where he serves him, and on the other day, he serves himself and he's considered to be totally owned by himself. And that also means that if the slave, for example, finds something on a day that he is owned by his master, so his master would be entitled to that which he finds. But if he finds it on the other day, then he would keep it himself. Do Basil, that is the opinion of Basil. Omlahem Bishamai. Bishamai said to Basil, Tikantamis Rabbi. You fixed the issue concerning his master, that he can still be the slave of his master. He doesn't lose out by the fact that the other partner freed his share. But this Antimolid Kantem, you haven't fixed the issue concerning the slave himself. Why? He isn't able to marry a non-Jewish slave, a female slave, because he's half a free man. And when a non-Jewish slave is freed, he becomes fully Jewish, and it's forbidden for him to marry a non-Jewish woman, a non-Jewish slave. And at the same time, it's also he's also not able to marry a free woman who is a regular Jewish girl, because he's half a non-Jewish slave. So he's not able to marry anybody. So Yibotel, should he do nothing? Should he not get married? Surely the entire world was only created in order to have children and fill the world. As the Pesach says, Hashem didn't create the world to be empty, he created it in order to settle the world. 
And we do that by having children. So it can't be that we put this half slave in a situation where he's not able to fulfill this idea, which is one of the entire purposes of creation. Eliminating an Olam, rather, in order to fix this big issue, which we are faced by, we force his remaining master to make him into a free man, to free his share as well. And the slave who is gaining by being freed, he needs to write a document saying that he owes this master half of his value. And when he has the money, he'll have to repay that to this remaining master. And once Basil explained their opinion, Basil retracted and ended up teaching and learning like Basil. Not like they said originally that he should serve himself one day and his master one day, but rather that he needs to be freed totally now. Mr. a non-Jewish slave, because he is owned by a Jew, he is obligated to keep many of the mitzvahs. All mitzvahs which a woman is obligated to keep, which is virtually all of them except for the positive mitzvahs, which are bound to a specific time, but all other mitzvahs a woman is obligated to keep, so too a non-Jewish slave is obligated to keep all of those mitzvahs. As well as that, when he is freed, he becomes fully Jewish and would have to keep, if he's a man, he would have to keep all of the mitzvahs. Now, this being the case, if somebody has a slave, it is forbidden to sell that non-Jewish slave to a non-Jew, because when, once he's owned by the non-Jew, he won't be able to keep the mitzvahs. As well as that, interestingly, it's forbidden to sell the slave to somebody who lives outside of Eretz Israel. Since there are more mitzvahs which can be kept inside of Eretz Israel than outside of Eretz Israel, it is forbidden to sell the slave to somebody living outside of Eretz Israel, if you are living inside Eretz Israel. What happens if he does sell him? Somebody who sells his slave to a non-Jew or to a Jew living outside of Eretz Israel, he goes free. We're talking about a case where either he escapes or when it comes to somebody who sells the slave to a non-Jew, which I bought on, he's obligated to ransom him to make sure that he doesn't have to stay with the non-Jew and he's able to keep mitzvahs. And even once he's done that, he now the slave goes free as a punishment for the person who sold him. And the Jew who's outside of Eretz Israel is obligated to write a document freeing the slave, and he can't claim his money back. He shouldn't have bought the slave from somebody living in Eretz Israel and taken him outside of Eretz Israel. So we punish him as well, he needs to free the slave, and he will not be able to claim his money back. Alright, next example of Tikkun Oilom. We don't ransom captives for more than their value. Because of the Oilam, and the main concern here is that it will encourage the captives to capture more people when they see how willing we are to pay such high prices to ransom the captives. The Gomorrah does explain there are exceptions. For example, if the person captured is one's wife, or he's a particular big Tamut Chacham, or if it's in a time of a war where anyway the non-Jews would capture people. But in general, it is forbidden to ransom them for extremely high prices. Next example, the Imavrichen interestingly, we cannot make efforts to free captives. Because even if we manage to free them, there is a concern that it will lead to them being more fierce and treating the remaining other captives more harshly. And even if there are no other captives, or you manage to free all of them and let them escape, that's what we're talking about, where you encourage, you help them to escape. Even then, in the future, when they are going to capture other captives, they'll be more harsh on them because of what you do now. 
Now, on this point, Rabbi Shem Ben Gamliel, Gamliel says a slight difference. It's an enactment for the sake of the captives who are already captured then. Which means that if there are no other people who are captured then, we're not concerned that later on, when they capture more people, they'll treat them more harshly. We only need to be concerned that those who are captured right now will be treated more harshly as a result of them trying to help certain captives escape. Which means that if there are no other captives, then you would be able to help this captive escape. And last example of the Mishnah, We cannot buy from non-Jews, for a price which is much higher than their real value, because if they're an oilam, and over here the concern is that it will encourage the non-Jews to steal these things in order to sell them back to us for these high prices. Somebody who divorces his wife because of a bad name, a bad reputation, meaning rumors spread that this woman committed adultery and she had relations with another man. And because of this, he, her husband divorced her. And when he divorced her, he said that the reason why he's divorcing her is because of these rumors. He didn't make a condition that if these rumors are true, then I'm divorcing you. No, he said, I am divorcing you as a full divorce. And the reason why I'm doing it is because of these rumors. Says the Mishnah, it's forbidden for him to remarry her. And the reason is as follows. We are concerned that she will go and marry somebody else after she has been divorced. And then a while later, her original husband will come to her and say, I did research and I found out that the rumors were nonsense and that you didn't commit adultery. And had I known that the rumors were nonsense, I would never have divorced you. And he might make the claim, or even if he doesn't make the claim, it might appear as if the divorce was invalid. Because it appears as if he sort of made the divorce on condition. And once he knows now that it wasn't true, so he would never have divorced her. So the divorce was invalid, which means that her new husband is forbidden to be with her, and any children which she has from this new husband are mamzerim, children born from illegal marriages who can't marry into the Jewish people. And even though this is not true, yeah, this is not true because he divorced her fully and just explained the reason why. But it could lead to people thinking that the divorce was therefore invalid. So people might start saying that her children are mamzerim. So in order to avoid that, the Rabbanon said that you should know that if you divorce your wife, and say that you're doing it because of these rumors, it is forbidden to remarry her. And that way you know that whatever you're going to say later on, even if you find her innocent, you're forbidden to remarry her, and therefore no one will end up making these claims that she is a mamzer. Because the Rabbanon said that this is a full divorce, and you will never be able to remarry her. Alright, what happens if one divorces his wife, Mishram Neder, because she made a vow not to benefit from a particular thing, and he said that I don't want to be married to somebody who is prohibiting herself to benefit from things. Again, Loyachser, it's forbidden to remarry her because of the following concern. When one makes a neder, they are able to permit the neder by going to a bastin, and if it's hard for her to keep the neder, then the bastin can permit the neder. So she might go and marry somebody else, meanwhile she'll permit her neder with a bastin, and her original husband will come to her and say, had I known that you would permit the neder, that you can permit the neder, I wouldn't have divorced you. And again, it might lead to appear that her children from this new marriage are mamzerim. So the Rabbanon said, no, when you divorce her for this reason, you should know that it's a full divorce and you will not be able to remarry her regardless of whether the nether becomes permitted later on or not. Now Rabbi Yehuda, Rabbi Yehuda says, this is not the reason why it's forbidden to remarry a woman who makes a nether and is divorced because of that. Rather, the reason is that one is supposed to avoid making nadarim. You're increasing prohibitions upon yourself if you now violate that prohibition. You've done an extra avera, which wouldn't have been considered an avera without you making a neder. 
And that is the reason why it will be forbidden to remarry her, because it's a punishment. So says, If it's a neder which the public knew about, and it became well known, she made it in front of a few people, so then there's more of a reason to punish her, and it is forbidden to remarry her. If lots of people didn't know about it, she didn't make it in front of lots of people, then Yasir is permitted to remarry her. The main difference actually between whether it was made in front of other people or not is that as well as permitting a neder by going to base then, there's another way to permit a neder. And that is if a woman's husband, when he hears about the neder, says that he wants to cancel and annul that neder, he's able to do so. However, that does not apply to a neder which was made in public. So if she made a neder which cannot be annulled by the husband, then it's considered to be a real strong neder, and therefore she's punished. But if it was not made in public, so anyway, it's dependent on whether the husband wants it or not. So it's less severe, and therefore she is not punished, and they would be able to remarry after divorcing her because of this. Rabbi Meir, Meir says, Rabbi Meir is of the opinion, like the Tanakama, but the reason why one is not able to remarry her if he divorced her because of her neder is because we're concerned that if she remarries somebody else, and meanwhile she permits the neder in a base then, then her original husband will say, had I known, I wouldn't have divorced you. However, Meir limits this law, and he says that any neder which requires a chocham or a base then, to cancel and annul that neder, he's forbidden to remarry her if she made such a neder. But if it doesn't require a chochom to annul the neder, rather the husband himself is able to annul the neder, and that's only a few limited types of nadarim. But if it is one of those types of nadarim, then Yachser, he is able to remarry her, because this claim doesn't exist, this concern doesn't exist. Because what's the husband going to claim? Had I known that you would be, that you would permit the neder in Basin, I wouldn't have divorced you. That's not true. Because you yourself had the option to annul the neder and you didn't. And you still divorced her and therefore you wouldn't have that claim. So the whole concern doesn't exist and therefore there's no reason to prohibit him from remarrying her since there's no concern that he'll make such a claim. Because he hasn't got a claim because if it was really true then he should have annulled the neder himself instead of divorcing her. Now, Omar Rabbi Elazar, Rabbi Elazar said quite the opposite. They only forbade this case because of this case. Meaning the main prohibition is in a case where she made a neder, which doesn't need a chacham, and he can annul. And the chacham also prohibited the other case. But the main case where it's forbidden is the case where you and Meir said it's permitted. What exactly are we talking about? According to Meir, the husband's claim is that had I known that I'm able to annul a neder, he can claim that I didn't know I'm able to, to annul a neder. Had I known that I, I myself was able to annul it and to cancel the neder, then I would have done so and I wouldn't have divorced you. So firstly, he's arguing against Rameyer in that case. Rameyer said that in a case where the husband himself is able to annul the neder, then you wouldn't have any claim. Because Rameyer understood that his claim is, had I known that you would permit the neder in base, then I wouldn't have divorced you. Rameyer is assuming that he knows that he can annul the neder, and therefore that's not a claim. You can't say, had I known you would permit it in base then. Even if you didn't know that, but you knew that you could annul it yourself, and yet you didn't, you still divorced her. But Rabbi Lozer is saying that's not true. We can, uh, we can also think of a case. The husband can also come with a claim that he didn't know that he's able to annul her neder himself. And therefore, he still has a claim in that case as well. So firstly, he's arguing on Rabbi Meir on that point. As well as that, he's also arguing against Rabbi Meir in the other case. According to Rabbi Meir, if the husband is not able to annul the neder, and she requires a chacham, or a bastin to cancel the neder, 
So then he's got a claim that had I known that you could permit it in Basin, I wouldn't have divorced you. You would have done it before I divorced you. I would have got you to go to Basin and I wouldn't have divorced you. Rabbi Lozra says he can't make such a claim because it's known that a husband is not comfortable and doesn't want his wife to have to go to Basin, which can be quite intimidating. In this case, it can be a bit shameful as well. And he never wishes his wife to go to Basin. For example, in this case, to annul the nether. So that entire claim, had I known that you could permit the nether in a Basin, I would have allowed you to do that. I would have got you to do that instead of divorcing you. It's not true, because he wouldn't have wanted his wife to go to Basin. And therefore, in that case, he has no claim. Only in a case where he himself could have annulled it, then he can claim, had I known that I would be able to annul it, I would have annulled it and not divorced you. So contrary to it comes out the exact opposite of a mayor. Just that Rabbi Loza has a slight difference, and he says that even in the case where he isn't able to annul it, and it requires a chacham to cancel the neder, where in such a case he hasn't really got a claim, the Rabbonon still said that in that case it's also forbidden to remarry her, because it's very similar to the case where it really is forbidden, and he really has got a claim. So all in all, we have four different opinions as to which exactly, which, which Nadorim this law applies to, when the husband has a claim, and admittedly, it is quite confusing to grasp the different reasons of the Tanoim in the Mishnah. Alright, the Mishnah ends off. Omar Bispa Yehuda, Bispa Yehuda said, All that we have discussed until now is when she makes a neder. But if he makes a neder, then this whole concern doesn't exist. That he's going to ha- start coming with claims regarding had he known that her neder could be permitted, that he could annul her neder. That doesn't exist when it comes to his neder. And indeed, there was a story which happened in Sidon regarding somebody who told his wife, I'm making a neder, a vow against benefiting from the world's pleasures, for example, if I don't divorce you. So effectively, he's making a neder which is going to, def- to force him to divorce her, the Gersha, and he divorced her. And then he decided he wanted to remarry her, says the Mishnah, the Chachamim permitted him to remarry her, because all of the concerns which exist um, in the case where she makes a neder don't exist. The entire reason to forbid it is when they take an oilam, because it's taken oilam to fix a particularly big issue and concern. And in a case where he makes a neder, that doesn't exist.